Radiolab is supported by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, exercising, cleaning. What if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yeah. Okay, ready? Yep. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. Uh, as many of you know, uh, Robert is retiring from the show at the end of the month. Um, <sighs> no. No, no, I don't want to open this way. This is bad. This is bad. <laughs> we don't want to do this. Okay, let's, let's, yeah, let's back let's up. Let's back up. <laughs> okay. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. Uh, so, as, uh, as many of you know, um, Robert is retiring from the show at the end of the month. This is our last month hosting the show together. I know. Ooh, yeah. I can't I can't think about that right now. <laughs> no, let's <laughs> so, run quickly let's, past let's go, it. Yes. At, uh, you, we're going to be... Something, no, we're going to... No, 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 no. That kind of thing in the background. Something triumphant, maybe? Yeah, I could go either way. That's better, actually. Yes. In any case, yeah. we wanted to play a, a wide-ranging... Very Roberty in all its many flavors and forms and spirits. Conversation that we had, that I guess started with a question. Is that it right? It did. It started with a simple, peculiar question. The question is like I was reading an essay by who was it? Annie Dillard. Annie Dillard. Okay. And in the middle of a sentence, she wonders out loud in this essay. Hmm, there's so many people on the planet right now, and more all the time. I wonder if there are more people alive right now than have ever been dead. More people currently alive than have ever died in the history of humanity? That's the question. That's so such a peculiar think, question. Well, of course it is. <laughs> but think of it this way. Let's make two piles, okay? Uh-huh. Let's make a pile of all the people who have ever died and all the people alive right now. Which pile is bigger? All the people that have ever died versus all the people currently alive. So, yes. Every single person who has died gets put onto a pile. Right. And everyone who is, pile as gets far bigger as we know, except bigger. for Jesus and maybe a few others, like everybody's died. Oh, except for Jesus because he came back. Yeah. It's funny. Does he, he count? Rolled out of, <laughs> no, I don't question. think you could count him. <laughs> it would be all the people who've ever been alive <laughs> minus one. Subtract one. <laughs> yeah. That's right. funny, but then he saved a whole bunch of people too. But they, they kind of, they're still no, dead. No, no, they're dead. Right? They're okay. dead. Yeah. But I mean, we're talking about a lot of dead people here. Well, no, but it's actually a reasonable question when you consider just how many people are alive on this planet right now. I was born in 1947. There were roughly, what was say, 2.5 billion people on Earth. And what is it now? Like 7.6? It's 7.6 right now, but we're adding 386,000 babies on Earth every single day. 16,000 wow. babies an hour. So in my lifetime, the population of the Earth will almost have tripled. That has never happened in human history. So you're in, saying just that in my life. 
you're saying that the acceleration of baby making is such that we might be outracing all the people who have already died. Well, at least it's a reasonable question, I think, to ask. Okay. Like, could it be? How would you even ask the question? We have to count the dead. Well, how would you do that? Well, that turned out to be a little bit of a problem. There's like no man standing on a corner. So dead today are, I mean, there's no such person. There is one person, though, who had done a study. He was a man living in Washington, D.C., and I guess on one afternoon a long time ago, he did the, quote, math, unquote, and came up with the answer to Annie's question. So then I said to him, like, how did you do this, and when did you begin counting? You and called. Everything? I called him. And what he doesn't like is calls from reporters about this. <laughs> Did he hang up on you? He, almost, because he said, I have done so much work in my life at the World Population Council, and I've gotten 750 <laughs> calls from you stupid reporters asking about this one dumb thing, which I just spent an afternoon doing, oh, and I, it's so the funny. only thing people want me to fuck So he said, I'll just do this one more time, and don't ever call me again. So he quickly, and to me, completely incomprehensibly, described what he'd done, mm-hmm. and then... I said to Latif, I don't understand a word that man said. Also, he's hostile and doesn't want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I found Jeffrey Doberiner. I see. Sitting there through the glass there. So how did you get roped into this madness? Uh, so I went to one of your editorial meetings, which was delightful. We talked a, l- a lot about cephalopods. And I introduced myself. I'm a, I'm a PhD archaeologist. So that's PhD my... PhD archaeologist. There's no math in archaeology, sir. Whoa, whoa. Them fighting words. Uh, <laughs> no, well, he's yeah. insulting without even realizing. That was, isn't archaeology being out in the dirt digging? Well, yeah, but then someone's got to count all the things you dig up and then make broad statistical generalizations about them. Um, really? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that math and archaeology were buddies. It's pretty mathy. Also, uh, carbon date stuff, super, oh, super yeah, duper okay. mathy. Okay, sure. Um, so it's a lot of Excel, honestly. It's so do you spend your time in front of a computer uh, more than uh, on your hands and knees in the in the dirt? I would say there's about uh, three days in front of the computer for every day in the field. I did my dissertation on the border between Mexico and Guatemala on the ancient Maya. Oh, wow. Okay. Did you find any cool things? Oh, yeah. I found uh, I found a lost city. That was good. <laughs> Just, by the way, what? found a lost city. It, it was embargoed. Found a lost city? The, uh, the article just came out. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> What's it like to find a lost city? Is it, is it, does it look like a city or does it look like, oh, there's a shard, but I know so much about what I do that this shard tells me it's an entire city. Well, this is the key. So first, there's kind of a uh, sort of colonial imperialist mindset where we often call cities lost when indigenous people still know where they are or they're not actually lost. So that's, I see. Did someone a, say, oh, it's over there? More or less. So it's, it's, a, it's a problematic phrase. But what's interesting about this one in particular is that there are Maya hieroglyphs. They had a fully so developed we, uh, we talked about and lost cities for uh, very long like 40, 40 minutes maybe. <laughs> but eventually we did come back around to the question at hand, which was, are there more dead people than alive people? Okay, so step one was that Robert and I got together once he heard that I was an archaeologist. And one of the first things we landed on is when do humans actually exist? Are we talking like upright bipedal humans? Or are we talking about... That's the rub. That was one of the questions. That's we, I said to Jeffrey, well, what do we do? Do we go back to the beginning of humans? And when is that? Yeah, when is that? Like 100,000 years or something? Well, if, if it's humans who like paint and wear jewelry and talk and make music, if it's modern humans that would resemble us or more or less be identical to us, yeah. that's 50,000 years ago. So but, have more but, humans died in 50,000? No, 50, no, that we decided to go, what the hell? We've got to go back all the way 200,000 years where you get the first grunting group of, you know, cave people 
who are standing up and running across a savanna. So we the, went all the way back. Wow. So, so la- last musical, but still on two feet. Yeah. That's Soren Wheeler, who is our managing editor. Some people's metric is if they're sitting in the subway with you, would you blink? And would you look at them twice? And oh, that's an interesting metric. So by that metric, it's probably around 200,000 years ago. But it's a very simple test. Send your 200,000-year-old homo sapien to Bloomingdale's, put him in a tie and a jacket, stick him in a subway. Do you blink? There you go. <laughs> if he looks like he fits in the subway, then he is a homo sapien. So okay. that's what we decided. 200,000? Exactly. 200,000. 200, so past 200,000, you would blink on the subway? We would because they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't be, what would be, what would they be different at? They would, well, in reality, they'd probably to- totally naked and, and holding <laughs> no, up. No, no, this no, is no. the most interesting <laughs> blend of like, of, of, of high order math and like pull it out of your ass. <laughs> so can I restate the question to you and tell me if this is right? Have more humans died in the past 200,000 years than are currently alive? That is the question. Okay. So Robert had already seen this Hob, talked with this Hob fellow and looked at the math. And Hob had a number 108 billion, plus or minus, being the total number of people who have ever lived. So he'd already done that math. This is a dead pile. Kind of. That's the total number of people who have ever lived. So actually to get to the dead pile, you subtract the people who are still alive and... When you adjust all the numbers, it comes out to roughly a hundred billion dead people in the history of our species. A hundred billion yes. people have died versus the seven point seven, whatever it is that are alive that are today. alive today. That feels lopsided. <laughs> the dead seem to have just won a staggering victory. <laughs> I think if you do it in in abstract terms, that means every person on Earth today who is alive, hovering about them, are roughly. 13.15 ghosts of previous people. <laughs> One five ghosts. It's a, well, it's a, a mathematical extra ghost. fraction of a ghost. Just like so the hand that, of a ghost. That's a ghost a, hand. A ghost, <laughs> a couple of ghost <laughs> fingers and maybe a toe. So that's But you know very, what else just died here, Robert, is your premise. Well, <laughs> I guess I could say it's goodbye It's been about now. nine it's minutes just, we've been chatting. No, no, I don't like this. I can't get out while I'm behind. So no, <laughs> let me take up the same question a little bit differently. Okay. One might call this cheating, but I call it simply reframing the question. If you look, instead of at the whole Earth, if you think to yourself, is there some place on our planet where the number of people who are alive is almost or actually equal to the number of dead? Maybe there is still such a place somewhere. Oh, I see. So if we take, if we go, if we if we zoom in rather than the whole Earth, we say, uh, I don't know, Australia yeah. or something. Australia comes immediately to mind. But it turns out that when Jeff and I just scanned the globe, for some peculiar reason, when we looked to see whether there would be more living people in any place on Earth than dead people, as it could be possible, we found that we were sitting in such a place, at least possibly. You mean like New York? No, no, uh, it can be bigger than that. Like the lower 48 states of the United States of America, as beautiful as we think we are, uh-huh. for some reason didn't attract a lot of ancient people. Like, well, we've had native populations we, in America for, for yeah, but, thousands of years. But when you count them, there are many, many more people elsewhere. Like we... Oh, you mean a, like statistically, like the, the yeah, population sizes have been very much smaller here than elsewhere? Not many people chose to live here and therefore not many people died here. That's just a fact. Well, why not? Well, in the effort to try to figure out what is it about the United States of America, lower 48, okay. that has made it so different from the others, just quickly, we came up with five things. Some are more startling than others, but they quickly, are pretty. we came up with five. 
<laughs> Real brief. Real brief. All right. If you, if, you, if you don't want five, that's too much for you. I, I can do it in three. First, number one, humans did not arrive in North America until very, very recently, almost like the day before yesterday. So the Earth has humans living in it in Africa for a long, 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 long time. Right. And in the Middle East for a long, long time. And in Europe and Asia for a long time. And in America, like, there was nobody here until fairly recently. Really? Yes. It yeah. was just snakes and bears really? and birds. We're sure about that when we say it? Yeah. We have never seen any evidence of human habitation of any sort anywhere in North or South America until fairly recently. Okay. I, in, in terms of... And that's a lot of land. Like, that's yeah. a huge... Right. No, people are pretty confident about the peopling of the Americas. Any scientist you ask, any archaeologist you ask, will say, yeah, it's around 15,000 years ago. Okay, so, so we've settled that we've come here very recently. Yes. So, there's, so that's good because there are going to be more living. There's less dead ones. Yep. The dead pile is going to be small. Second— Wait, wait, wait. Before we get to the number two, why did it take us so long to, to arrive in North America? Well, that's such an interesting question. All of us have heard the story that you imagine these Asians— parked at the very, very edge of Siberia, gazing across what we now call the Bering Strait and looking for the first time at North America. And you think, okay, it's just, you know, get on that little land bridge that they supposedly took. Uh -huh. you imagine this little narrow column and there's snow on the north side and snow on the south side and they're shivering and they run and they say, oh, here we are in this new place and now we'll go and discover it. <laughs> and it all happened in an afternoon or something. But... The truth is so spectacularly different. And just what this, is it? Okay. What happened is there was an, as you know, there was an ice age at the time. Yeah. And what happens then is ice freezes and the sea sort of gives up water for the ice. So the sea at that point dropped roughly 400 and some feet. That's a lot less ocean. Huh. And the North Pacific, as it happens, is a fairly shallow place. So what happened was as the water went down, Land that had been near the surface dried and rather quickly became a rather large subcontinent. If you look at the Bering Strait today, what you now huh. have to imagine is back then there was a big landmass that went a thousand miles down. Wait, can I just, can, just so I can visualize this, you're saying that the water receded to reveal like uh, just a whole mountain range of things. Well, low lying but nevertheless dry space. The what? Aleutian chain was sort of up on the north end, and then a lot of the North Pacific wasn't there anymore. Instead, there was land, and on that land, because it was at the top of a Pacific Ocean that had equatorial waters coming from the center of the, of the Earth, warming that southern side, in the summertime, that land bridge was covered with flowers. Lupins coming up all around you, so these, these deep, beautiful purples and fireweed. This is writer Craig Childs. Plains of, of steppe-like grasses and herds of Pleistocene horses, muskox. It would have been a, a pretty lush place. And what happened was the people stepped out into this enormous landmass. It was beautiful. So they just stayed on this place. Because when you were trying to get further east, North America was still frozen and getting colder all the time. Huh. So there's this middle place which they now call Beringia, I've never heard of it before, which sat between Asia and North America. Asia got cold and they couldn't go back. America was cold and they couldn't go forward. So they stayed for 15,000 years. That's 15,000 extra years just because. Wow. 
Okay, so this is reason number one of three for what makes North America so different than other places and why you guys decided to focus on it. Because I guess it was emptier for longer. There was less people dying here. Is that right? That's correct. And by the way, if these people paused in Beringia for so long because it was so nice there, why did they ultimately decide to come into North America? Why did oh, they decide to Oh, come they in? left because it began to get warm. The Ice Age huh. begins to change, and you get a warming period, and now the ocean starts to rise. So there you are on Beringia, and every few years, and certainly every generation, there's a little less of Beringia as the ocean creeps in and then in further and then in further still. And slowly but surely, Beringia is beginning to disappear. So you've got to go somewhere. Okay, interesting. But now where do you go to? North America had been all this time this wall of white, forbidding, frozen, desert-like ice field. Mm -hmm. But with the warming, you now get a little bit of, of North America that becomes a little bit more available to you. So they enter. Okay. And once they arrive in North America, that's where we meet problem number two. Because it was getting warmer, there are pools of ice water that are gathering above the glaciers. The meltwater on top grows into ponds and then into lakes. But there are lakes on top of the ice. Uh, the size of the state of Georgia. And so... <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Marine geologist Shannon Klotzko. So you, yeah, you start to have your ice melt. and These ponds of water get deeper and finally break the ice that has cradled them. Uh And there are explosions, floods on a magnitude that you couldn't imagine. People have correlated the floodwaters from Glacial Lake Missoula to the force of 60 Amazon rivers. Oh, my God. And that can then cause another lake to fail. And oh, no. uh, so you can potentially have... So you get a chain have, reaction? Uh, potentially. And Shannon says as these lakes combine and then flow into one another, they just keep growing and growing and growing until they are bigger than Lake Superior plus Lake Huron plus Lake Erie. Oh you see a mile of water 150 feet high oh, roaring all across Idaho. It's knocking down whole forests. Very large animals like uh, megafauna are tumbling in the waves of it. Oh, my God. And then it's so forceful that it literally scours the ground. Mm. So there's nothing left to eat. There's nothing left to protect you. Nothing can survive it. I I always conceived of North America as this big bread basket. Yeah, so did I. It sounds like a death basket now. For a little while, it was like, so what happens is there's so much water coming off of the ice, cold, fresh water— and the warm salt water from the equator is just sitting there going, oh, hello, going singing like Hawaiian songs. Mm-hmm. And then this freezing water comes in and the ice age turns back on oh, no. <laughs> for another, I don't know, how much, some thousand years or whatever we find. So, th- so pause number two is basically the water pause. The third one is Jeff's, which is we don't actually notice any big cities in the lower 48. There are huge ancient cities in... Peru. Just think about, like, I'm going to ask you, how many famous ancient cities are there between Maine and El Paso? Pretty close to zero. Curiously, for some reason, there's no cities here where they're all right south of us. 
Central America, Andes America, Machu Picchu. There's big roads and everything mm. just south of us, but we're kind of empty. That's interesting. That's really good for our math because that means that there aren't a lot of going to be as many dead people here because there weren't a lot of people who used to live here for some reason. I am suddenly interested to know why people didn't settle more so densely in North America sooner. Well, the answer, Jeff says, is corn. Corn. The children of the corn, yes. So every city on Earth basically needs a grain to give it some energy surplus. Mm-hmm. You know, If all you had was farmers farming, they wouldn't be a city. You need some extra energy to support what you'd find in a city, which would be a king and some soldiers and some priests. So you can't just have a city unless you have some extra energy. So... Every city that he found from ancient times seems to have a a barley or a wheat or a potato. In Central America, which is doing great, they had corn. But it took them a while. We went and interviewed the corn guys. Jeffrey Rossi Barra, I'm a professor of evolutionary genetics at University of California, Davis. And the corn guy says, the first corn, the first corn was like this miserable little plant with like seven kernels on it. Eight kernels instead of 800. <laughs> it was like a, just a sad-ass piece of corn. And you couldn't afford a dog on this corn, let alone a city. But corn. That's another terrible corn. So what you do is you take the corn that has eight kernels and you plant it until the corn, and you get one old by some crazy that has 11 kernels, and you gradually breed the corn so that it has more and more energy on it. Uh-huh. This takes hundreds of years. But finally, the Mexicans are what people who live in what we now call Mexico produce an 800 kernel bit of corn. Mm. With an 800 kernel thing, a plant, like you can now, you're now eating enough energy to have a soldier or to okay. have a general. Or interesting, like interesting. So you're saying the Mexicans are the ones to... to they did first. that, and now okay. they suddenly they have like a 50,000 people, and there's 100,000 people. Corn makes people possible gathering in large numbers. And I said, well, what the f***? I mean, the Mississippi <laughs> Valley is still there. The amber, the grain, the amber waves of grain. Like, what's our problem here? Why didn't we do the corn? So well, we didn't borrow, we never, we never borrow the corn from well, the Well, I said, why not? here's a simple thing. I said, Jeff, like, let's just imagine a farmer in what we now call Mexico, but it's 10,000 years ago, and he gives his son an ear of corn with, 206 kernels on it and say, go north, you know, open up a new farm. Yeah. And it turns out that corn freaks out. Like, corn, when it grows on the side of a mountain in Mexico, is used to a 12-hour day and a 12-hour night and a certain temperature cycle. If you give the corn to your kid and he just takes a seed off of it and plants it in the ground, <laughs> the corn goes, no! <laughs> I don't, don't call me! <laughs> so, the, so the corn was doing great in Mexico, but it didn't travel it well. Could, we, tra- we then clocked. They said, how long does it take corn to travel north and not freak out? And we came up, we had a, a <laughs> number. hilarious. It's thousands of years, yeah. yeah it, it takes a long time. So if you want to get the corn to the Thanksgiving festival in 1621 with the pilgrims, <laughs> and you're starting in Mexico, you have to wait thousands of years for the corn to do it. Like, that takes, so you're on corn time. Wow. So the reason why North America doesn't have a lot of people in it is because the corn wouldn't go quick. <laughs> Can't, I never heard can't of any rush of this. the corn. Can't rush Needs the corn. Needs twelve hours. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that's funny. That plus uh, a well, you're not like, is this number three? You that's finished? Three. And we're pretty much okay. Ready. Wow. So if you add it all up, you've got the Beringia pause. Okay. The flood pause. You got and flood. corn time. Corn time. <laughs> and you add those three, and you got an explanation for why we're I peculiar. See. I see. 
Okay, so I guess this brings us back to your original question. Uh, it seems like throughout history there was less people living here than other places. Could it be the case that in North America there are more people alive currently than have ever died? An arithmetical question. All we have to do now is count the dead. We know the living. We will do the dead count in just a second, right after the break, and we will find out the answer to that question. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Deidre from the Long Beach Peninsula, Washington. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radiolab is supported by Zbiotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. Radiolab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. For so many Black people, the whiz feels like home. <laughs> The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing, and as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to The Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Chad, Robert, Radio Lab. So before the break, Robert, you explained that when you look at North America across its long history, uh, you see it sort of uniquely underpopulated. So it's possible in this place, the number of living people now might actually outnumber the dead. Right. Possible, but true. That's the question. Before we begin our count, remember that the number of people in the United States right now is roughly 330 million alive people. That's the number the dead have to be. So do you want to do some dead people math, dead people in North America math? Yeah, so the, the game we played is we took the math that Hob figured out already. Don't call me! <laughs> we, we took Mr. Don't Call Me's math, um, and we played the same game with 
North America, specifically using benchmarks that we can infer in the past at different points in time. So in particular, there's something called the Handbook of the American Indian, where a bunch of very smart archaeologists got together in the 70s and 80s and made this 14-volume set. And one of the articles in it that many of the eggheads worked on together is trying to estimate population at... uh, in 1492, and then sort of in the centuries afterwards uh, of indigenous oh, well. peoples. So we so used Columbus onward, kind of. Exactly. So we used sort of an Adam and Eve, two people, as our initial benchmark, although if you shift that number. Wait, up, you use an Adam and Eve, two people, starting when? He needs a foundation population. At 15,000 years ago. 15,000 years ago. Okay, right. the first two humans to step foot onto North America. Precisely that. Um, and then we took the two million as our endpoint. Uh, at 1492. I see. And then we ran uh, this well-known demographic population growth formula to sort of interpolate population through time with this gentle exponential growth rate. Okay, wait, just so I understand... No one understood anything you no, just No, no, I'd oh. say I got about 62% of that. Okay. All right. Um, why 2 million is an endpoint? So that's what the eggheads had decided. So they're all archaeologists. Uh-huh. Uh, each one was sort of a specialist in a different region of North America. Yeah. And so... They put all of their heads together to kind of try to come up with the best guess estimate of how many people were here uh, in 1492 and then going forward. So y- you have a reasonable population estimate snapshot at 1492. Exactly. And you know that that 15,000 years before that there were two. And so you're just sort of trying to fill in, was it two, then four, then 12, then 1,000, then two. And you fill in, if you can fill that in and say how much were there at all these different times, then you can know, how, since everybody dies, then you know I how see. many people died. I see. Okay. So we're trying to establish the size and girth of the death pile. Exactly. Okay. Uh, the key other tweak beyond just getting the population at each uh, moment Uh-oh. is that it's, it's, it's a small one, although it's mathematically confusing sounding. But um, there's a lot of infant mortality. Mm. Uh, and so the population at each year at those benchmarks doesn't necessarily capture all the people Interesting. who die at, at various points, especially people who die under being one, right? Um, and so, so do you like estimate the, uh, the rate of infant mortality at various times in history? So what you do is you use uh, an est- estimated actual birth rate. You say for a given population of people, what is the likely number of babies that were born that year? And those babies will all die. So instead of counting the people who are alive in any given year, you count all the babies that were born to them in each year based on this ratio of a high birth rate. on the fact that they're going to die eventually. Exactly. So you're you're counting their babies, assuming they'll die each year. Mm. And then you just do that integrate through to 1492. So, okay, so what did you find out? So, well, that, that only got us to 1492 and then the indigenous population a little beyond. So, how, much did, how many people died up until 1492 out of curiosity? Jeez, I, I can tell you I have it on this laptop, but I don't know if that's inelegant. What do you, what do you mean? To, to open a laptop? Yeah. Will you no, allow op- it? open it up. I'm going to do it. Wait, so now, so the number you're looking up is the number of people who were ever alive from 15,000 years ago when there was nobody on the continent till 1492. That's exactly right. So we're looking at uh, 206 million. 206 million people. So then subtracting the 2 million people who were alive in 1492, then there's 204 million in the dead pile by the time Columbus shows up. That's precisely right. That's not many. It's not many. The population was 2 million. Yeah. So the dead are kicking ass at that point. Yeah, but that's right. But then, but then maybe maybe we catch up. That's the dream. This actually, this seems impossible to me. If you have two hundred four million dead, 
and 2 million alive, there's no way that the, the living can catch up. Is there? Well, uh, the next step is to interpolate for the indigenous population after 1492. So those guys in that book did that. Okay. And then to start to collect colonial records and then eventually American CDC and census records and tabulate all of the dead at various eras okay. based on that. Okay. So when you put it all together in one big shiny pile, unfortunately, it comes out to 489 million. What does? The total pile of dead. The dead pile is 489 million. By what? And we have 330 million people alive in North America at the moment. We do, yeah. So our ratio, we it's not quite a win. But did we ever where we did we ever in our in our in our in our expl- population explosion ever overtake the dead? No. No. Okay. But I asked you to consider this. Okay. If the world average is This is 50, rescue number two. Yes, <laughs> that's rescue number two. Okay. If the world average— I was average, just going to be like, let's narrow it down to Arkansas and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> to Bridgemar County in Arkansas. Well, here, here's what, I, what strikes me as really interesting. If the global average is 13 ghosts for every living earthling, yeah. the American average, it turns out, is 1.5 ghosts for every living American. Interesting. So we do have a special situation here. We don't have the dead pile being smaller than the living pile, but we're really peculiarly close. And that struck me as interesting. We're in an almost situation. That's it. That is interesting. There is a uh, – I think that there is a, a, a good balance somewhere. 1.5 ghosts to one earthling feels like two little ghosts to me, frankly. Why? I don't know. It's just a feeling I have. Um, 10 ghosts to every – 15 ghosts to every one person feels like too many ghosts. I think well, there should second. be like, like six. I, I, no, no. Why? Because here's what. Here's another way to and think it's like, about it. It's a connection. Of all the people who ever lived, Jad, fifteen percent of them are alive right now. I, I think it's seven, seven percent for seven percent no, for so, the world. Seven percent for the world. Yeah, that's oh, one. Can one you 15. restate his sentence yes, with, with actual? Of all the people <laughs> who have ever lived in the world, seven percent are alive right now. Okay. And what about America? In America. Of all the people who have ever lived in the lower 48 of America, 70%. Really? That's are interesting. Alive right now. Ten, a tenfold. Yes. Wow. Okay. Fun. If Thank all God for the you, people <laughs> who have ever lived, 70% are alive. So that means. Or I guess the mm, dead pile is 30% bigger than the, than the alive pile. Yeah, maybe I need to rephrase that's not it, bad. though. Because it's not of all the people who have ever lived, 70% are alive. Is that, that's not right? It's like our living pile is 70% of the size of the dead pile. Right, right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I like the other sentence better. It has more oomph. I don't understand the difference. Maybe I could say something like 70% of the number of people who have ever died here are alive today. <laughs> no. Wow. I think that's true. I know, but it doesn't, it's just, it mixes it's too many. Die, it's who have ever died here are alive like, today. Yeah, that, no, you, like can't, a you can't be alive after you die. Yeah, can't even actually know where to start on that one. And so take our word for it. This is Radio Lab. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, that's really like I have to say, I'm sad. Maybe I want the threshold, or I want to have. It's like I keep thinking about that point in your life which I have not reached, where more of the people that you have known yeah. and loved are gone. 
And I, if that yeah. feels to me as a person, like a sad moment. Um, when your personal dead pile is larger than your personal yeah, life. Yeah, and it feels like, a, if, if even if not sad, it feels like a moment of transition in, in yeah. terms of who you Last are and time. what you are. And it feels like if at some point humans went through, but maybe they, I don't know. That's what I'm thinking about. Well, I, mean, I think in mood, you're hitting a, the right note. If you're in stage, I guess, of your cycle where most of the people you've ever met are alive and well and there are a few dead ones, that's a different state. Yeah, it feels vibrant and mm -hmm. full of yeah. like you're, you're beginning, you're on the up. But once most of your people are gone. Yeah. Yeah. But see, I think this is where my number six comes in and I might need to adjust it. If you don't have any go, if you don't have any dead in your pile, you're like a snot-nosed young person who hasn't lived. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, you have so, no heritage. Well, you have no heritage. Just trade off between vibrancy and wisdom. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Well, I think with the, the higher the dead pile, theoretically, the more wisdom you have. I, I, the good news for for you, Soren, is that our the the fifth or sixth way that we save this story actually <laughs> gets us to uh to a, uh, to very much your exercise to very much your exercise. So how how did you do this? Well, it's uh July fourth, seventeen seventy six, the day America was born. Okay. Uh, so we decided let's just count from there instead of all that <laughs> stuff in the past. Wouldn't that be better? Oh, well, th no, but this is, fair. <laughs> this is fair. This is fair because we had decided zero on, on the lower 48, but like politically, the lower 48 only existed as of 1776. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, if we're doing America, okay. I can get on this train. So we just invented the idea that we'll start the count at America's birthday and see what happens. This is this is this is the <laughs> this is the intervention you've decided to make. Yes. Well, because <laughs> well, it's America. Because it's, it allows uh... you to play almost like a quiz program. Okay. <laughs> All right. Because we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna look at the odometer and say, okay, if we start in 1776 at midnight, and let's say at three o'clock in the morning, uh, Solomon Wright, um, a silversmith in New Hampshire, mm. drops dead. So he's the first dead American under our under our count. Like we start counting at midnight on the fourth of July, seventeen seventy six. So you start with a certain number of living people. How do we? Because so really, we, what yeah, you're doing yeah. is you're giving the living a dead a head start. Right. But all the people that are alive in seventeen seventy six are going to die before we get to now. So they still end up counting. I mean, yes. like that's everybody true. alive on the fourth of July will be dead. I, at yeah, some I have point. an estimate. I don't know what you've got, Jeffrey, but the internet tells me that the estimates are that there was about two point five million people living in the United States uh, in seventeen seventy six. Yeah, that's the number we use. Okay, wow. 2.5 million. 2.5 million, man. There's more. So 2.5 million versus one. One silversmith. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> yes. That's exactly right. Right. So we're winning. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so two and a half million. Right, so you got two and a half million on your alive pile, and so far, one dead person, silversmith Samuel Wright, may he rest in peace. Okay. But then again, if you look at the sweep of American history, there's lots of death also, so... Mm -hmm. You go into any graveyard and you'll find lots of uh, lots of little boys and girls dying at one and two. There are populations mm -hmm. that you know get hit by cholera and malaria and flu. You have the wars. 
You have uh, lynchings and race riots and labor violence. You have a lot of violence. And so there's lots of death in American history, big spurts of it from time to time. Yeah. Yet at the very same time, when you get to the late, you know, late 19th century, you get millions upon millions of immigrants pouring into the United States. That's right. true. Waves of immigration, exactly. And then having big families. We do have a, a spike at this point. So there's all kinds of new living people as well. Right. Death is there and life is still there too, coming on strong. But then... Uh, doesn't that work against you on some level? Because all those people who have come in in that span of time are now dead. And so for if our question here is, uh, are there more people alive in the U.S. Uh, that have ever died? Well, then all that matters is how many people are alive right now. Mm-hmm. And all those new living people from the time of the immigration are dead now. They're in the dead, dead pile. pile. Yeah. So you kind of... Well, I, I'm getting confused. Every time you seem to win, you're actually losing. I yeah. think you've lost. I think you've lost. <laughs> I think that's what's All happened. All right, Jeffrey Doberminer, tell the man what the numbers actually say. Uh, our total dead pile from 1776 to today in the United States of America is 251 million. Hey. hey. In the U.S. population. Coming young, young feeling spry. <laughs> Living a one. <laughs> and 251 million is greater or lesser than the current population of the United States? Less. Wow. So if if you put about 14 asterisks onto the question, <laughs> you do get you do get the living win. The living do well, win. Well, so just, just to pump it up a little bit like a quiz show might. Mm. Jeffrey Dolberiner, how often since July 4th, 1776, have there is there ever been a moment, even a second, where the number of people who are dead outnumbered the number of people alive at that moment? Ding, 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 Never? Never. So, you do have these spurts of deaths, which you think would, would basically push the dead over the living, but the, the numbers tell you that the living win. And this is the amazing drama, I think, of America as, as an example of something special. We live in a country where huge numbers of people came here. They had large families. Those large families, our grandparents had larger families still. And now we are still in the echo of that enormous immigration. And that has made us really, I think, unusual in the world. Okay. Uh, that's all right. That's nice. So now the question becomes... Is there another one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the last, this is Hold the last question of the whole essay. Okay. Now, Jeffrey Dobroyan, take this seriously. Oh, okay. I'll try. <laughs> Surely, when the baby boom generation after World War II and humongous number of people starting in 1946 and go to 1963, let's say. So that's the... Ba- it's an enormous number of people. Now, soon, and I can include myself in the group, we will all be dead. I'm kind of hoping that since the baby boomers have never for even a day thought of themselves as anything other than important, (laughs) is it possible that the baby boomers will be the group that pushes the United States in our fictionalist version into the death column? When we die, there will be more of us than our kids and their ultimate survivors. Are we the odometer moment? You say this because it is yet one more way in which you baby boomers are important? Exactly. Or (laughs) does it confound the importance? Do you say that as a self-hating baby boomer? Oh, no, 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 Or as a proud baby boomer? As an eventful baby boomer. Like, we are always the main event. And we will continue to be that. And roll and Woodstock and now dying. Okay. And so, is your, your hunch is yes? Well, I don't know. I said, Jeffrey Doberminer, you can do the math. Do you, you have the answer. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't leave you hanging what like that. What is the that. answer? Well, conveniently enough, the CDC uh, estimates 
future populations of the United States and deaths each year going up to 2060. So, really? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know Whose why. Whose job is that? I, <laughs> that's... He has a spear and he wears all black. And it's a scythe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, Edgar don't, don't Reaper, could you Edgar deliver Reaper. your report, please? Uh, yeah. He works somewhere in the U.S. I Census I want to meet that person. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah. It's the last person you'll ever meet. Um, so the answer is it's actually in 2060. 2060? 2060, that's what, what happens. Is, what is happening? Uh, the odometer count flips. There are more Americans since 1776 dead than alive in 2060. There are more Americans dead or alive in 20. So you're dead right. Dead than alive, yeah. So your baby, baby well, boomers are going to tip the, us the, over. Wow. The, yeah. the boomers will all be gone before that. See, Robert, <laughs> Robert insists, despite hearing these numbers, that it is the baby boomers every time. But it would be a 97-year-old baby boomer that would have to turn the clock. Yeah, no, that's more likely to be Gen X. That's going to be that's going to be me. What? Gen X? I'm going to get there. I got to just got to get to 86, 86 years old, and then I'll, I'll, I, I am going to tip the scales. <laughs> Well, it's the race that, is on, gentlemen. It's true that there'll be fewer baby boomers to die every year starting... That's true. Yeah, around, around. The, the Gen Xers are a very small generation. Yeah, but we're going to tip the scales. The boomers are going to take it. They're going to take us right... They're going to put the ball in the tee. Well, what, what, do you know when precisely this person will die, at least according to the abstract numbers? Yeah, so if we just divide our CDC numbers into days of the year, it's uh, December 29th, 2060... 6.57 p.m. and 36 seconds. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, let me, uh, how confident can I be? Who was, which, if you take Soren's claim that it's probably a Gen Xer who will be going, like, let's see, if I were to live to 2060, oh, God, I'd have to be 113 or something. Yeah, whereas there, I'll there, be 86. Prime dying could time happen. for me. I'm just a re- oh, Jad will be 87. I'll be 86. Both of us ready to die. Mm-hmm. Ready, ready to, to tip die the scales. To, uh, yeah. Oh, as proud Gen Xers. I don't really know what you have to be so proud about. <laughs> <laughs> so that all said. Wow. Yes. Okay. What a journey. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> what a journey. <laughs> It's fun. I think you can even just run that brain up. It's really it's a good brain. Yeah, it's really good. A quick addendum, because before I thank the people I want to thank, uh, this particular radio lab was more literally than almost any I can remember, an actual conversation sort of loosely done. So, of course, mid-conversation, certain things came out of my mouth which weren't quite right, and I wanted to take a chance to to correct myself right here. I mentioned that Mr. Hobbs worked at the World Population Council, which seemed like a very good name at the time, (laughs) but in fact, he worked at the Population Reference Bureau, so I'm sorry about that. And when we were mentioning the Handbook of North American Indians and said it was 15 volumes, the actual number of volumes was 14. I want to say special thank you to Jeffrey Doberiner, archaeologist and math guru who kept digging me out of mathematical holes. Thanks also to Shane Doyle of Native Nexus and Montana State University and to Matthew Bennett of Bournemouth University, to Shannon Klotzko of the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, Jeffrey Ross Ibarra of the University of California, Davis, David Meltzer of Southern Methodist University, and Craig Childs, whose book, Atlas of a Lost World, 
um, was one of the inspirations for this study. And then, of course, the one who inspired it all, Annie Dillard. Her essay, by the way, where I, where I bumped into this question, is called In the Wreck of Time. What I'd forgotten is that she actually posited an answer. She, she said probably the dead do outnumber the living. She didn't ask nearly as many follow-up follow questions. questions as we did or <laughs> go into history or any of that. But that, that she was the one who sort of gave this a little goose, and I thank you for that. And again, the essay is called In the Wreck of Time. Thanks to Jeremy Bloom for mixing and uh, Neil Dinesha for doing a lot of the work to get this going. Okay, we will be back next week with... With what? With a tribute to you, Bobby Kay. Mm. We're going to celebrate you a little bit. It's going to be very embarrassing for you. Yeah. Or uh, hopefully not embarrassing. It will be embarrassing. Fun. I hope fun. (laughs) Okay. Anyhow. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hi, this is Wild Rose Hamilton calling from Swan's Landing in Bellevue, Colorado. Radio Lab is created by Jad Epimrod with Robert Krolwich and produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Geppel, Bethel Hapti, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kilty, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. From Shima Oliai, W. Harry Fortuna, Sarah Sandbach, Melissa O'Donnell, Tad Davis, and Russell Gragg. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more.